Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. In this episode, I'm interviewing Paul Yanon of uh, Colangelo, which is a wine PR firm based in both New York and San Francisco, and we're going to talk about the wines of the Rhone, the reds, the whites, the rosés, and the fortified wines as well. So, Paul, if you could just introduce yourself and your relationship with the Rhone. Um, so, uh, I am uh, the vice president of uh, the wine side um, for Colangelo and Partners, and we represent the Rhone Valley. Um, Part of my job uh, as the Vice President of Wine is very much focused on education. Um, I work a lot with uh, trade, both in the restaurant and retail world, as well as with uh, you know, consumers and press to really, really get um, people understanding what makes me excited about you know, some of the, the wine regions that I'm very, very lucky to work with. Um, one, of those, you know, one, of, one of those regions that's particularly close to my heart is uh, the Rhone Valley. Um, originally, I'm Australian, as you probably noticed from my funny accent. And you know, Shiraz Syrah has always been a really, 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 really cornerstone part of my love affair with wine. Um, you know, what I do at Colangelo Partners is really, really just you know, uh, extol the virtues of all the wonderful things about um, wine to both you know uh, the the novice as well as kind of the the, the geeky. Uh, wine aficionado, connoisseur, you know, soul out there. So um, finding ways in which, you know, you can connect with everyone through just pure passion and, and love of uh, what's in your glasses is where I, you know, tend to enjoy myself the most. And so how would you um, give an overall view of the Rhone? It's one of the first regions that I fell in love with, uh, partly because of its value and its uh, kind of immediate appeal and also the variety of wines that are produced in the region. How would you describe the Rhone to um, the casual consumer? Um, I would always kind of describe Rhone Valley wines as a, a nice warm blanket. Um, there's something really, really comforting, uh, specifically when it comes to, you know, that, that combination of, you know, that warm microclimate that you do see in the Rhone Valley that gives you lovely, rich, ripe styles but also variety as well. You know, when you look at what's unique to the Rhone Valley is the fact that they were the ones that really brought these incredible, you know, noble varieties like Syrah, Grenache to the forefront. Um, and people kind of understood them as the masters of the blend, you know. Um, you know, Bordeaux obviously likes to call themselves the master of the blend as well. But we're talking about, once again, a, a different subset of varieties here where, um, you know, the Bordelais may not know, you know, how to blend Syrah, Grenache, Mourvedre, uh, as well as they do their own. So I think that there's a different set of um, mastery that happens in the Rhone Valley. You know, the wines can range from, once again, that everyday perfect drinking wine to go with dinner when you don't need to think too much um, and, and be intellectual about it. But, you know, when you go into some of the, the crew-based wines, um, you know, in the north and the south, you get complex evocative wines that can you know, display power, structure, um, elegance, finesse, give you aging capacity. And they truly become very, very different beasts from, you know, the, the nascent pups you might buy when they're first released all the way through to like 30 or 40 years down the line when they're just, you know, unique beings unto themselves. So I think that there's a lot to like about the proposition of, of just complex, ripe wines that have great 
food pairing capacity and a great story to tell, which is, you know, once again, dating back to Roman times. And perhaps because Rome wines are generally blends of different grape varieties, maybe we don't talk about terroir as much as we do about Burgundy, which is 100% Pinot Noir, 100% Chardonnay. I mean, how do you describe the different soil types and different aspects of um, the Southern Rome in particular? Well, I, I think part of the problem with people wrapping their head around the Rhone is it's big. You know, the Rhone Valley has uh, an innumerable amount of, you know, different appellations that live within it. You know, um, people sometimes get confused knowing the differences between, say, Cote d'Rhone versus a Cru or a Cote d'Rhone village versus a Cru. And there has to be, you know, perhaps some starting point where, where people sort of, you know, have to, to learn about the Rhone Valley and, and, and to really, really have it coalesce. You know, I always just talk about the pyramid. The idea is that the pyramid is based on entry level wines, which are Cote d'Rhone, which can come from anywhere in the north and the south. The next level up is Cote d'Rhone Village, which can only come from, you know, Appalachians in the south that are under the Cote d'Rhone banner. You have Cote d'Rhone village with a geographic name, which are specific villages within the Southern Rhone that have a certain uniqueness lending itself to a characteristic which is different from other areas. So that's where Tawar kind of really starts to creep into the conversation is that at the Cote d'Rhone village level, it really is about site. It really, really is about being able to take wine quality from here at the low level up to something that's you know a little bit more complex and the idea of just thinking about a world of villages where you know if you look at the ancient sort of way of viewing europe you know every village would have a different type of pasta every village would have a different you know perhaps work specialty and you didn't go to the other the other village if you were looking for something very specific if you had it in your village you were the one village that did it and so that same approach applies to say the Rhone valley where at the Cote d'Rhone village level, there are 22 villages that have a soil type unique to them, which may produce something that gives maybe slightly, um, you know, piney citrus elements into their red wines, or perhaps a slightly peppery or tannic sort of element that you don't see anywhere else. And akin to Burgundy, you should be looking at sort of what terroir gives to a specific area. Um, you know, people, people, once they start to see, oh, I'm getting, you know, a certain level of power from, uh, you know, uh, Plan de Deux or the whites in Laudun are giving me some really, really, really lovely fresh aspects. All of a sudden now people can kind of navigate what they like and, and what they're looking for in a wine by proxy of this thing called terroir. And at the top of the pyramid, you know, you've got the idea of crews, which are the ultimate expression of, of terroir, where they've grown out of, you know, the, the general Cote de Rhone classification. And it really, really is about, you know, soil. It is about the geology, really is about, you know, microclimate, um, you know, specifically when it comes to the varieties that are there. Uh, you know, Gigondas, which is the first ever uh, crew that got elevated from Cote de Rhone, is now within the pantheon of the great you know, appellations of, of the Rhone Valley. Um, and the beauty of this is that, you know, perhaps in places like, you know, Burgundy and Bordeaux, where terroir is seen as this very fixed thing, 
um, in the Rhone Valley, terroir can be elevated, you know, up to, you know, what is equivalent to, to crew status as people start to realize that there is something there. Gigondes was that first region that people just said, it's not generic, it's not basic, this is something special. And the Cote and the Rhone category is the only category that does that, you know, Keran, Rastow, and recently Laudun. Laudun's going to be um, elevated to crew status next year. Um, shows that terroir isn't kind of this very basic fixed thing. It's something that can actually be appreciated on a deeper level, and it gets shown through promotions. Gondas is one of the first um, appellations that I discovered. So everyone knows about Chateauneuf de Pape. And then you realize that you look at a region just next door to a famous region, and it's half the price and just as good quality. Although, unfortunately, Jugandas is getting more and more expensive as people <laughs> bring in to appreciate it. Um, and then you have other appellations like Vakiras and Lurak, um, which can add to the confusion, but also give an identity to the wines as well. And then, as you mentioned, we have Côte de Rhone uh, Village. And you mentioned that the different villages, this is a very great value app appellation term, I think, but it could be a bit confusing to consumers. So can you explain a bit further about the different villages and how they have different identities and how consumers can kind of pick them out in the, in the shop? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, all of this kind of comes down to fundamentally, you know, we're all visual kind of drinkers at the end of the day. When we walk into a, a supermarket or a retail store, what we look at is the label first and foremost, you know, and, and people may have heard of the Rhone Valley and that's great. But the Rhone's huge, and you kind of have to be able to dissect what is on a label to say, okay, well, if I'm looking for a certain type of wine, a certain uh, variety that maybe, you know, I want, you know, Grenache is usually more southern-based, you know, if I want Syrah, maybe look north. There is a little bit of decoding that needs to happen. But for something like Cote de Rhone Village, it is one of the best values. Um, and I say this as an everyday punter. I love drinking wines that are great value, um, but I also love being able to find that sort of hidden gem where all of a sudden I'm starting to creep into complexity and you know, power and structure and being able to see beyond primary fruit and you're getting those really, really nice secondary characters coming in that are kind of interesting. And once again, going beyond that, you know, Wines for drinking, wines for thinking. You know, you find that sort of pathway um, to get that in between before you start jumping up in price to some of the more expensive stuff. And I think that Cote and Village is that great gateway. So, if someone wants to really understand Cote and Village, you kind of have to go through all 22 vintages, and that's kind of the fun part. But at a very basic standpoint, you know, you'll see a Cote on a shelf anywhere from like you know eight to Eight to fourteen dollars. These wines, once again, lovely, wonderful, easy drinking wines go well with food. You may see some prices creep up closer to the twenty dollar mark, maybe even the twenty five dollar mark. And they have Cote de on them, but they've got this little village section afterwards. That village section is a guarantee of a certain level of quality. You know, Cote village wines usually are. Uh, you know, the, the fruit's picked a little bit riper, the alcohol is a little bit higher, and you're seeing a, a greater selection of fruit coming through from the vineyards. Um, Cote de Village as a character, you know, you may only pay 3 or $4 more, but you get that guarantee of quality as you move up. The thing that, too, that is really, really important to notice is that 
Kotoran village is a, you know, a pretty big area as well. So Kotoran can be north and south. Kotoran village handles all of the south. So, you know, there could be any number of incredible Kotoran village wines out there, which are made by Chateau Neuf producers. You know, uh, Chateau Le Neuf, for instance, makes an incredible Cotoran village from vineyards that are just outside their Chardonnay the Appalachian. So you really, really are getting the benefit of the estate-driven philosophy now, where certain producers who might be on the smaller side have those vineyards in these top areas that just lie outside of the boundary, and they can't classify these grapes as you know, that top crew-level wine. And so the consumer benefits from that because they're declassified wines that you can buy for, you know, an incredible price that have a, the winemaking team that makes these incredible, you know, high level, you know, uh, cuvées, but you've also got that proximity of, you know, great site, um, which are contributing to these, you know, there are, you've got similar things happening in Burgundy too, where, you know, someone in, in Montrachet might produce some, you know, uh, Bourgogne Blanc by declassifying some of their fruit that perhaps just isn't allowed from AOC rules to fit into that, you know, that higher end Montrachet bottling. So you've got a similar thing happening with Cote d'Iron Village and that's what's exciting. When you take it a step further, you know, when you have Cote d'Iron Village with a geography, that's when you start to get a little bit more of the, the geeky little element coming in because, like I said, every one of these villages and there are 22 of them have something unique and have something different um multiple producers you will find will actually own vineyards in different villages so you you may see a a producer make three different Kodron villages with different names on them um and that's always kind of a fun thing to do when you're actually you know comparing and finding what you like but you'll often find that um each of these individual areas um may have slight tweaks to what makes them unique. It could be soil-based, um, it could be variety-based. Um, in the instance of, say, um, Kerkan, for instance, its proximity closer to the northern road means there's, there's probably more Syrah planted in this once Cotoran village, which made it very, very different from the villages more further down south, which are more Grenache-based. So if you love Syrah and you don't want to pay Northern Rhone prices, you would kind of creep up to Kehran and, and get some incredible values there because you know that there are certain producers there who are actually making close to 100% Syrah-based Cote de Rhone wine, uh, which is highly unusual. But there's a reason why you know Kehran got elevated because they deserved it and their wines were unique, they were different, they were complex and powerful. And, and consumers can still get those wines for great pricing, but, you know, the idea is that seeing on a map, um, it doesn't tell you the whole story, but being able to go out and try these sort of unique villages gives you a sense of, you know, the diversity of the Rhone Valley. I think that's kind of what gets lost here. People think it's all the same grapes, it's a big, big area, and it's all kind of hot, right? So, you know, it doesn't matter where I buy. If I just buy something from the road, it'll all taste what I think it will taste like. And there's so much more when you start thinking about terroir that that becomes fun. Uh, so you sent me a couple of bottles uh, of uh, 
Kilgarum village, and they both have the name of the village on the label. So it's Clobalan, Kilgarum uh, village, Balrias, and there's Cellier de Dauphin, uh, Plan de Dieu. And so is that typical to make these single village wines, or is Kilgarum village more of a, a blend of different villages? What's kind of the trend for that? Well, I think that, you know, what you're seeing here now is that, particularly with that Cellier de Dauphin bottle, um, there's actually the grower's face on it. Um, yeah. which is which is kind of a, a new way of looking at wine. You know, it used to be like, hey, here's a drawing of a chateau and you know, you can get an impression of, you know, the the prestige and history of the winery from that. The fact that they're putting their grower on the bottle suggests that there's a certain authenticity and people behind this. Um, and they really want to highlight that because, you know, when you have a region that's as old as the Rhone Valley and you've got winemaking families that have been there for like five to eight generations, you know, they're not moving to go and plant vines anywhere else. Like that village is their village and they're proud to, you know, grow their Grenache, Syrah on that dirt. Um, so I think that you're seeing more and more Rhone Valley producers now really leaning into this idea of diversity. Um, especially too, you know, in the age of sustainability and, and um, you know, climate change, you know, Rhone Valley producers are proud to be organic. They're proud to have, you know, a great, great, um, you know, environmental policies that can kind of elevate one village over another. Um, and I think that, you know, having people sort of see sort of more unique areas is, is kind of where all the value kind of like, you know, bubbles to the surface. So I think that you're seeing more, more producers want to highlight their, um, you know, their, their vineyards in these individual villages. But, but like I said, you know, for certain producers who declassify fruit, Cote de Village is like this incredible hidden category of wine that, you know, there's a ton of Chateauneuf producers who are making Coderone Village wines that people don't even know about, and they should be worth triple the price. Yeah. Like, I, I will say that um, Chateau Ranks has a Coderone reserve wine that will happily sell for $150, $200 a bottle. And no right person in their mind would consider paying that unless they knew, you know, the quality behind that. But once again, you know, with, with Chateau Ranks being as expensive as it is, to be able to get, you know, um, that same team, that same declassified level of fruit for that price, it's actually a value. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, people people should find a reason to believe in both of the types of Cote d'Iron village they'll see, whether it has just basic village or then it has a village with a village, because at the end of the day, you're buying, you know, something that, that's significantly greater than the Cote d'Iron level. So as you say, um, decoding the label, decoding the pyramid. So understanding the label helps you get great value wines because you understand what's actually in the bottle. One other question, alcohol. So in Chateauneuf de Pape, alcohol has risen and risen. Is this something that has been addressed and to get more balanced wines, which are obviously naturally high in alcohol because it's the Southern Rhone, it's warm, and Grenache is a high alcohol, great variety. But um, getting a bit more balanced to the wines, is that something that's um, being done? Yeah, so definitely. I think that, you know, as around the world, there is kind of a move towards peaking earlier, looking for freshness, um, you know, especially too when it comes to the whites. You know, I think that once upon a time, 
the whites of the Cote d'Iron were maybe shunned because they were, you know, you've got grapes there like Marsan, Roussan, Grenache Blanc, Viognier that sometimes pick up too much of that alcohol and can sometimes appear um, not nearly as, as fresh and vibrant, you know. When Sauvignon Blanc kind of exploded in the wine world, you know, people went, you know, that, that, that's the acid that needs to, to be on my table every day. Um, and, and the Rhone Valley kind of took a hit with that. But I think the winemakers are pretty smart enough to actually be able to still get incredible ripe fruit without sort of really pushing the boundaries on sort of, you know, that hang time. They're looking for freshness. They're looking for vibrancy. They're looking to bring the acid to the fore a little bit more. So definitely you're seeing that in the whites. Um, I think with Rosé too, you know, I think that they're, uh, they're, they're perhaps pressing less as, you know, less hard than they used to. Um, the Rhone Valley shouldn't be Provence. Like, you know, at the end of the day, Provence is lovely, but Provence isn't always up to the task with food sometimes, you know. Sometimes you need a tabel. Sometimes you need, you know, there's a reason why, um, you know, uh, Southern Rhone Valley has Syrah, it has Grenache, it has these grapes that can give you texture, it can give you weight, it can give you all those lovely fruit characteristics while still, you know, giving that freshness and acidity. So I think the rosé side of things is a real opportunity where balancing out freshness and acid is actually making the rosés of the Rhone Valley even better than, than what they used to be. On the red front, I would say that you know, winemakers too, you know, are looking at vineyard management ways, whether it be through canopy management, trellising, to try to, you know, mitigate some of that, that heat, you know, as we've seen, you know, this vintage, um, it's pretty chaotic right now, you know, it's hard to, to, to pick, um, you know, when the weather's changing so dramatically, you know, when you've got fires, when you've got hail, you've got things like this, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. So winemakers have a pretty tough job. Um, the good thing about the Rhone Valley is you've got an incredible set of mountainous areas where you've got altitude mitigating some of the um, valley level pressure that you might feel um, in, in some others. So areas like, say, Ventoux uh, are really excelling right now because you know they've already got built into their DNA um, the idea of... of you know, uh, altitude already kind of, you know, mitigating some of, some of that rising, rising, um, alcohol and ripeness. Um, you know, areas like, uh, I want to say like, you know, Dieu is kind of a, a flat area for the village area, but they do have a little bit of elevation and they do have the geology to be able to actually, you know, restrain some of that. So I would say that, you know, the Rhone Valley's built to be able to have grapes that can move in a, a climate that gets warmer. Bordeaux and, you know, Burgundy perhaps may not necessarily have that level of positional kind of uh, flexibility to move. Um, you know, the, the, the fear of everyone having to dump Merlot from, from Bordeaux in a warmer, even a warming climate is, is a death sentence to some people. Um, but I don't think you'll ever have that with Rome. Well, how do you see climate change as an issue in, um, the Southern Rome? Well, I think that, you know, the Southern Rome is, is kind of, kind of nice in that you've got the Mistral, 
which reduces a lot of disease pressure. You know, it's hot. You don't have that humidity. That mistral comes through and kind of really kind of cleans things up a little bit. So that allows the Rhone Valley to focus on things like, you know, biodynamics, focus on things like organics, be less pesticide, herbicide, chemical, um, you know, dependency. Um, and so I think that they're looking at ways in which a very low intervention, um, you know, like I said, with canopy management and trellising, um, that don't require the, the basic fundamentals of the wine to change that much. Um, I think that, you know, at the price points they're selling and the volumes you're selling as well, you know, there is, there is a way to actually keep things still consumer friendly. Um, whereas, you know, like say in Chateauneuf where, you know, you may need to invest more in order to actually, you know, keep, keep the wines at a certain level during sort of these changing, you know, chaotic conditions. And you are seeing prices, you know, obviously in Chateauneuf, you know, not, not becoming accessible. Um, but I think, you know, there, there is a, a, some degree of consistency that the road can provide compared to other places in the world. Um, and I think that, you know, the environmental side of things that they're leaning into right now are, are going to help that moving forward as well. You know, less dependency on, on chemicals and allowing, you know, a lot of nature to still be there without having to be super commercial um, is kind of what's going to keep some sort of balance in their own. And that I'm just saying they're very proud of. So you mentioned um, whites and rosés. So obviously the Rhone is most famous for its reds, and that's the majority of, of wines made. But the whites and rosé are very good. I do have a particular liking for white Rhone. I think it's hugely underappreciated. Um, can you talk about white Rhone, or maybe it's more of a trend for white Rhone, and you mentioned changing styles, a bit more balanced, a bit more acidic. Uh, can you talk about those whites? Yeah, I think, you know, what, what you're seeing right now is, you know, a lot of people are realizing that there's a lost opportunity with the whites in, in the Rhone Valley. Everyone kind of uh, talks about, you know, perhaps the Northern Rhone occupies, you know, a lot of the, the white crew space. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, they're incredible. When you have uh, you know, Chateau Grier, Conjure, you know, Crozemitage, Saint Joseph Blancs, they're all lovely, wonderful wines that, you know, have the capacity to age and, and really, 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 you know, are great thinking wines. The missed opportunity right now, I think, is in the South, where there are a lot of white rones made at a very introductory level. Um, and like we discussed, you know, the, the move to freshness and balance um, is making these wines even more enjoyable as, as kind of gateways and entry points for, for a lot of younger consumers or people who are just looking for something different to drink. Um, you know, you've got a lot of these grapes which have the ability to, to flesh out and give you, um, you know, some really good textural qualities. So, you know, Grenache Blanc is the bread and butter of, you know, the Southern Rhone Valley. So you're finding some really, really, really great producers leaning into trying to get the most they can out of Grenache Blanc. And, you know, obviously they'll support that with some of the more, more finicky kind of grapes, like, you know, Roussan, Marsan. Um, but there is definitely, you know, perhaps 
a, a real growth opportunity for, for Grenache Blanc to do something. You know, you see Spain doing so well with Garnacha Blanca uh, from, you know, Catalan and, and areas like that, you know, producing wines that are interesting and vibrant and complex. And I think we need a little bit more of um, that kind of evangelism for Rhone whites as well in the South, because when made, they can be really, really lovely, just good value, good drinking wines at, at an accessible price point that have the capacity to scale up to if you want to find, you know, more complex offerings. So it's a good gateway. I think that, you know, needs to be reintroduced to people. Yeah, and I wonder if um, there are some producers here in California who work with Grenache Blanc and um, Roussin, and if that kind of reintroduces people to the Southern Rhone itself, kind of brings them back, kind of using that international trend for uh, Rhone varieties could be helpful for Rhone producers themselves. Uh, what about uh, Rosé? So yesterday I actually tried a Tavelle. It is a very different style of Rosé, much deeper in colour, richer, kind of halfway between a Rosé and a, a red wine. Um, I commented to the sales rep who I was tasting it with is that Tavel is too cheap, and that kind <laughs> of well, this one would have retailed for $23, and a lot of roses now are getting up to $30, at least the very good ones. So it has this weird reputation of being historic, high quality, but it's not as expensive as some other Provence, Rhone, or California roses. What's your opinion of Tavel? So I think Tavel is amazing. When I was first cutting my teeth, you know, uh, I was a Somme, I, you know, I worked in retail. Um, just the color of, of, of Tavel back then was something I had never seen, you know, before. It was like, it wasn't trying in any way, shape or form to be, you know, white Zinfandel. It wasn't trying to be Provence, you know, it was unabashedly just dark skinned. And what you're seeing now is that the greater trend right now is for light reds that, you know, somewhere sit between a Pinot and a Rosé, and that's kind of the sweet spot. You know, people want that complexity. They don't want water. Um, there's a reason why, you know, Pusa, Trousseau, um, you know, Norella Mascalese from Etna are all kind of like hitting in the right direction because they've, they're flavorful, they're complex, but they're not water. And so, you know, this idea of, you know, Provence kind of, owning rosé, you know, I think that time might be kind of coming to an end because they've taken it to a, it, its final end point, right? You know, Provence will not and cannot be more than it wants to try to promote itself as. And if you're, if you're all you're going to have is this lovely sort of, you know, very, very light partridge style um, rosé, there's a time and place for that. But if you want to move into something that's kind of, once again, drinking and thinking, Tavel kind of takes you to that thinking place. It's 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 got it's got complexity. It's got flavor. It's got structure. And you know you could happily age a Tavel for five years and come back to it, and and it's going to give you something really really interesting. Um, uh, I think that that at that twenty dollar price point, that's low. Um, you know, you look at bundle, for instance, and you know people will be happy to pay fifty dollars for a bundle rosé from Tempier or, or something like that. And I think that um, Tavel probably should sort of lean into that a bit more and, and talk about, you know, it's not just for, you know, porch pounding. This is, these are wines of complexity and structure and intensity. And, you know, 
let's let's try to lift the appellation up a little. You know, obviously there are some tabels that um, are priced at that price point. And there's a whole bunch of just natural wine kind of wonderkins who are farming tabel and making these light reds. You know, Domaine Langlois is a perfect example. You know, songs around the world and geeks, including myself, will happily just go out and just try to search for these bottlings. And um, they're in that light red category. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it's, not, it's, it's not, you know, committing to the idea that we're rosé and rosé only. It's like there, there's something more than just the name, a style of wine in Tabel. It's, it's a real depth of wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting category because rosé is so popular over the last 10 years and it's transformed completely. Tabel doesn't neatly fit into uh, rosé trends. So I guess it's how uh, those producers position themselves in, in the market. But I think your idea of um, a light-bodied equivalent to red is really a good way of uh, describing those wines rather than rosé. Um, one last question on fortified wine. So there is fortified wine made in um, the Rome, Baume de Venise from Muscat, and also Rasto. Um, how do you see the market for those wines? Because they're very good wines, but obviously it's not a yeah. Like, I, I love sweet wines. Uh, my wife does not. <laughs> and it's, it's a fundamental battle of you're either the, in the I love it camp or I hate it camp. And, you know, the, the world is, the wine world is a very different place from where it used to be, you know, 50 years ago, let alone 20 years ago, um, where perhaps, you know, Sauterne were, were always had a place at a table or always a moment for, you know, port or, or, or a cream sherry or, or some kind of, you know, Pedro Jimenez or, or whatever. I think sweetness is a problem, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and understanding the moment is problematic for everyone. It's like, well, I'm not really having dessert, so I'm not going to have a sweet wine or I don't really want, you know, sweet, sweet. And so they think that, you know, there's a barrier that they can't get over themselves. Um, you know, I come from, once again, Australia, where we have a, a, a really rich history of fortified production um, and sweet wine production as well. You know, we've got, you know, great, great growing areas for this. And something like Resto, when you have fortified reds, you know, it's not easy to get people to think where do I drink it? How do I drink it? Why do I drink it? Um, you know, there has to be some pivot to education on sort of that. Uh, same thing with, you know, Bon de Venise. It's, these, these are incredible sweet wines that necessarily don't ne- have to be drunk at dessert. You know, if there are certain dishes, you know, obviously foie gras is the, the easy one to do, but even just Chinese food. There are certain Chinese food dishes that allow for that level of sweetness um, as a complementary element. You know, it just doesn't have to be, um, you know, aromatic whites with a little bit of residual sugar. There is potentially ways in which, you know, uh, a bun de Venise could be incorporated into, you know, styles of wine that, that have um, higher sugar levels. So it, it's a tricky proposition, you know. These, these areas are the best at what they do and... It's all about finding new markets for them and, and educating people that, you know, uh, sweetness isn't a dirty word. Um, and that, you know, these wines, once you kind of work out where they fit in your own sort of, you know, 
lives and dietary habits, um, it's a lot easier to, to, to be more considerate of, of, you know, drinking them more often. Um, but I would also say too that, um, you know, them just knowing Bum de Manis and Rasto in the first place is a good thing because, you know, these areas also produce reds. You know, Resto Reds are, are incredible. Uh, Bum de Venice Reds, you'll probably find less of them, but they're also really good as well. Um, so I think that, you know, people knowing about the road and the areas of the road is one of those things where you can find ways to creep into things that perhaps you're not familiar with by proxy of the other stuff that's being made around it. Um, some Bum Venice Bundle Venice Reds I've had are amazing. And that made me think, well, I probably should revisit those whites again, or at least, you know, those those dessert styles. Um, and that call and response kind of, you know, is enough to kind of move you in a, in a positive direction. Yeah, uh, Muscat de Bone de Venice is one of the, the prettiest wines out there, I think. It's just so floral and just so attractive, mm-hmm. so perfumed. I think if someone smells it, they're immediately attracted to it. Even if, as you say, they might be put off by the fact that it's fortified and sweet, but it's a delicious wine to be drunk young and um, chilled. Uh, so just, as you say, education, just being introduced to these wines and trying them and uh, changing people's perception. So thank you for that overview of the Rome. As we've discussed, there are so many different styles of wine and different villages and different crew that I think it's a region that you get into because of Cote de Rhone and you enjoy those wines and then you just go deeper and deeper and deeper because there are so many uh, different aspects to try in the, the region. So thank you for that overview. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm just you know, glad to be able to talk about some of the wines I love and hopefully some of your listeners will be able to go out there and, and, and see some appellations and see some styles perhaps that they never really thought about drinking before and giving them a go. Yeah, go into any wine shop and they'll there should be a good selection of room wines for you, for you to try. Take care, Matt. Thank you very much for having me on your show.